Hi guys, good morning. Uh, welcome to The Exchange. If you are new, my name is Josiah. So glad to meet you. I'd love to say what's up after service. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark. We're in Mark 10, so again, you can turn there. Uh, if you would, just keep Kimber in prayer. She is pretty sick today. Uh, so she, my wife's 15 weeks pregnant. Um, and every week she gets like a little update from an app and it says what size fruit the baby is. I don't know if you guys have seen this or heard this. So this week the baby's a navel orange. Um, I think it's like three inches long. But uh, it's actually really fun to like kind of get these. And it's, it's, it's kind of depressing too because it says week 15 is the week you should start feeling better and have extra energy and more strength. And I'm like, mm, not this week. Um, so she's at home. She has had a migraine for the last like two days threw up this morning, so if you would keep her in prayer, that'd be awesome. We're like, we know this, she's in the second trimester now, so hopefully she s- should start feeling better anytime soon, uh, but just keep her in prayer if you would. Hey, we're in Mark chapter 10. Um, as I mentioned, we're, we're going through the gospel of Mark, and we're looking at this as just the life and ministry of Jesus, and, and looking at wherever Jesus went, wherever he went, he brought life and healing and restoration and meaning And so we too want to be people that wherever we go, we want to bring life and healing and bring the gospel. That Jesus preached the gospel, but Jesus is also the gospel. He is the good news. So he preached the good news, but he himself is the good news that God came to save. And so we want to take our first year, we we started this church in a sense this year, and we want to take our first year to slow down and focus on the life and ministry of Jesus. And so that's what we're doing. And so Mark chapter 10, if you're with us last week, we talked about the rich young ruler. Uh, one of my favorite stories, he was rich, he was young, and he was a ruler. And what, what the father was to Jesus, wealth and money was to this man. And if you looked at last week, Jesus, Jesus said some pretty hard things. He said it's hard for uh, someone who trusts in riches to enter the kingdom of God. And so we looked at money as a whole. That money is not evil, money is neutral. That we know that it's not money itself is the root of evil. It's the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That we studied last week in, in 1 Timothy 6 that the desire for money is a trap. That's how Paul writes it. The desire for it is a trap that, that many fall into. And so we looked at like a biblical perspective of money and how to approach it in a redemptive way. That again, money in the hand of a money in someone's hand who surrendered to God can be used in powerful ways. Money in someone's hand who, who's not surrendered to God can be used in some destructive ways. And so we looked at what Jesus said about riches, and he said it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And the disciples go, well, then who can be saved? And he goes, exactly. With men, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And here was the point. Um, it's not about what you have or don't have. Salvation is not a matter of subtraction or addition. Salvation is a matter of substitution. It's not a matter of if you have something or don't have something. It's a matter of a substitute, someone who took our place, and his name is Jesus. And so Jesus goes, yes, it's impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. And so that brings us to our text today, and it's a really interesting text. We're going to see two different people, two different groups in a sense. They have a prayer. One prayer is answered, one prayer is not answered. One prayer is heard in a sense, and one prayer is not really heard or, or, or followed through um, or answered the way they think they would like it. So here's what we're going to look at today. If you are taking note, if you're like paying attention to this, we're going to look at this as prayers and preparations. Prayers and preparations. We see that God is ultimately orchestrating all things. God is behind, you know, the scenes orchestrating things according to his will, but we also see that prayer matters, and we see that God uses prayer to affect his will. So we're seeing preparations and prayers, two different types of prayers, very similar, but also very different. And so this, just so you know, in this story in Mark 10, we're going to read about a guy named Blind Bartimaeus, and uh, this is actually the last healing miracle that takes place in the Gospel of Mark. 
So this is the last healing ma- miracle that takes place. And Jesus, we're going to see from like this point on really, it has his face towards Jerusalem, ready to face his crucifixion. So Jesus is now facing Jerusalem with his mindset, knowing he's going to die. And so I want to read this as a whole, Mark chapter 10. We're going to read verse 32 through 52. I want to read this as a whole, and then we'll kind of break it up and look at it from a perspective of prayers and preparations. All right, so Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Let's read, and then we'll pray. Mark 10, 32. It says, now they were on the road. I would circle on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. (laughs) Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Jesus said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So clear. Verse 35. Notice this transition. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So cute. Uh, verse 39. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for, for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. And, and Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that those who, consider, who, who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever, uh, whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Amen. Verse 46. Now they came to Jericho. And as they went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried all all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus answered, then Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus again on the road. Let's pray. Father, we just, um, we ask that you would speak to us. There's, there's so much happening here, so many different thoughts and, and kind of two different stories colliding. And, and Jesus, we just ask that you'd speak to us. God, show us how to pray, show us what to pray for. Lord, show us just how to be p- persistent in that. To also trust you that you are preparing and doing things that we, we do not see, we do not always get. And uh, Lord, I just ask for everyone in this room, I don't know what their week has looked like, Jesus, if they've been following you for years or, or not yet. But Lord, we just ask that you just move in this place, that your spirit would speak, that Jesus, our, our hearts and our attention would be on you now in your wonderful name. Amen. 
if Jesus were here and were to ask you that question, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? What would you ask? I mean, think about this. This, this question is actually asked twice in this passage from Jesus. I don't know if you caught that. There's some parallels and some similarities. Both times he says, what do you want me to do for you? And I want to know, like, what would come out of my mouth? I, I think I, maybe you've had some pretty audacious prayers, maybe some pretty lofty prayers. Maybe we've had some more realistic prayers in our mind. But I wonder, like, what would I say if Jesus were looking me eye to eye and says, what do you want me to do for you? What, what would just come out of my mouth? What would I say? What would you say? Again, like, I wonder, and I, I think there's been many prayers I've prayed where Jesus would answer the same way. He goes, you don't know what you're asking for. You have no idea what you're asking for. You know, you think this is good, but you have no idea what you're asking for. I always, when I read this, I thought initially of, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Christmas Story, uh, but I thought of Ralphie going to Santa, and he's like, finally, you know, declares what he wants for Christmas as he climbs up the slide. He's like, I want a red rifle, you know, red action rider, I don't know, whatever it's called. This long sentence. He's like, I want one of those. And he's like, you'll shoot your eye out, kid, and then puts his you know, foot on his forehead and pushes him down the slide. I don't know, I have that mindset of maybe, that, maybe that's how we view God sometimes, like, I was like, what are you talking about? But no, that's not, that's not the case. I think there is the sovereignty of God where he goes, you're asking for something, though, that you have no idea what it will ultimately do to you. So what would, if Jesus were to ask you, if God were to ask you face-to-face, what do you want me to do for you, what would you ask? You know, this actually happened in the Old Testament. There is a similar story to this. If you remember in 2 Chronicles 1, God appeared to Solomon. Solomon's the king, and, and God says, Solomon, ask, and I shall give it to you. Ask, what, what do you want? What can I do for you? Solomon's a king, and he goes, give me wisdom. Give me knowledge. I want to be a good king. I want to lead these people well. I want to judge well. And because of his response, in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, we'll throw the verse up here. In 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 11, this is what God said. God said to Solomon, since this is your heart's desire, and you've not asked for wealth, possessions, or honor, nor for the death of your enemies, and since you have not asked for a long life, but for wisdom and knowledge to govern my people over whom I have made you king, therefore wisdom and knowledge will be given to you. And I'll also give you wealth, possessions, and honor, such as no king who has before you ever had, had and none after you will have. God's like, because your request wasn't selfish, because you asked to lead the people well, I'm going to give you what you've asked and even more so. And even more on top of that. You know, 1 John 5, 14, there's this verse that says, we have this confidence towards Jesus that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. There's something about asking according to his will, and he goes, yes, I hear you. You know, James wrote in James 4, he goes, you have not because you simply ask not. So ask. You have not because you ask not. And he says this also. He says, you also don't have because when you do ask, you ask amiss, that you might spend it on your pleasures. They may spend it on yourself. It's a selfish request. And here's what's interesting. We see in this this passage, James and John and blind Bartimaeus, two different people, two different stories, but they both have a request. They both seem to be selfish. One is answered, one is not. And I think there's so much here. And, I, and, I've, and I've been just trying to meditate on this passage this week because I think Mark is, is paralleling these stories on, on a purpose. I don't think there's two random stories where Jesus asks the same question twice and one prayer is answered and one is not. So I want to look at this more in depth. I want to like look at this and break this down. Uh, but before I do, I have to show you this. In this section, in Mark 10, again, this might feel a little bit like deja vu. Maybe like I've heard this before. Didn't Jesus already teach on serving? Didn't he already teach on his death and resurrection? I feel like we've heard this a lot of times. There's this weird rhythm and pattern in Mark's gospel. We're going to throw it up here for you. But there's this pattern and rhythm in Mark's gospel. Notice this. And notice the verses side by side. So listen to this. Three times in the gospel of Mark, Jesus predicts his death and resurrection. Three times, immediately after, the disciples respond foolishly. And three times, there's a lesson on discipleship, service, and true greatness. All right? So if you notice this and look at the verses, 
Three times Jesus speaks about his death. Three times they say something really dumb. And three times Jesus is like, let me teach you now. All right? So maybe you're like, I've heard this one. Like, Josiah, this is now the third time you're doing something on serving. How are you going to make it different? I don't know. Do you have so many ideas? Like, I need help with it. No, but here's how we're going to break this down. All right. In our, our text right now, we're going to see a prepared plan, a prepared plan, prepared prayer. There's like this rehearsed prayer they have. We're going to see the prayer denied, and then we're going to see the other prayer accepted. So how we're going to break this down is we're going to see a prepared plan, a prepared pl- prayer, prayer denied, prayer accepted. So let's read again in verse 32. All right, here's this prepared plan, how God just orchestrates things behind the scenes. Verse 32. Now they're on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed, and as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, he says, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him, and will kill him, and the third day he will rise again. All right, we see this prepared plan. Please notice this. Mark does this a couple of times in this gospel. Maybe you've seen this, maybe not. He says, now they were on the road, on the road. This is not just like trying to like, you know, flippantly say they're just walking on the road. Most scholars all say the same thing, which is on the road is referring to he's on his way to die. He's on his way to Jerusalem. His mindset, his approach is I'm on this road to Jerusalem. Here's my mission. Here's why I came. And he's on the road and he's going up to Jerusalem. So they're leaving this Jericho area. And from this point on, it's be like a 3,500 feet incline up to Jerusalem. You'll always see in scriptures like up to Jerusalem. And it says he was going before them. Let's just start there. He was going before them. This is how discipleship works. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. That he leads, we follow. He's going before them. He's preparing the way. And notice the two ways it describes this. It says they were amazed and afraid. And please hear this. This is a great definition of what it means to follow Jesus. Like to follow Jesus, there will be times where we're amazed and we're terrified. I don't know if you felt this way before. I don't know if you've studied or, or just maybe you've been in worship and you're like, I'm amazed by Jesus. I'm amazed by who he is and what he's done. And at the same time, I'm terrified. They're literally following Jesus up to Jerusalem and they're going, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Oh my gosh, we're terrified. You know, if you've had that feeling maybe on the first day, like first day on the job, you're like amazed, you're excited and you're terrified. First day of school, you're excited, you're terrified. I remember the first time we, we had a child, Micah, we had my son. I'm like holding this baby and there's like this amazement, like, oh my gosh, like, this is, this is what? This, this is mine. This is ours. And I'm like terrified. I remember when we were leaving the hospital, like we're like signing the papers and like we signed his name and we're like leaving. I remember I'm like, so you're like, like we just get to go? Like, you're not going to come with us? Like we just, I honestly felt like the government's going to come back. Hey, hey come, come with me. You're not ready for this. Like I, I just wasn't like, I was amazed by this baby and terrified. I'm like, so where's the nurse? Where's the doctor? They're going to like live in our house, right? Like it's terrifying, but it's also so exciting. And this is how they describe following Jesus. They're amazed and they're terrified. And there really is something about that. As a follower of Jesus, I hope you experience both. There's a sense of this fear of the Lord that we have where we go, wow, you're God and I'm not. Who, who am I? Whenever someone encounters God, they usually fall on their face. And there's like this fear and this terror, but there's all this amazement. Like there's like this attraction to him. Like I'm going to follow you wherever. And so they're on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now, I want you to notice there's eight different aspects of the crucifixion mentioned. There's eight different aspects, you could say, of the passion, the time leading up to Jesus' death. There's eight different aspects mentioned to his death and resurrection. And we do see this. God prepared this. Jesus tells them play by play, here's what's going to happen to me. We're told in Revelation, we're told throughout the Bible, that before the foundation of the world, Jesus was slain. That God planned this, that God prepared this. That he can literally tell them play by play what's going to happen. 
And it, it, actually, if you remember, in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, Peter, he gets filled with the Holy Spirit, and he's, he preaches his first sermon, and Peter says something incredible in Acts 2. We'll read the verse. Acts 2, verse 22. Peter says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death. There's this acknowledgement that God, prepa- God prepared this, God planned this, God wrote this out this way. And we do got to see that ultimately God is the great orchestrator. God has complete sovereignty and control and providence over this. And we, do, we see, first of all, that we see God prepare things, but then we also now see prayer being involved. And those two things seem like, they seem counter to us. God prepares things and yet he involves prayer. God prepares things, yet my prayer does change and, and affect and shape things. And so we see this prepared plan, and now I want you to know this, this prepared prayer, number two. Look at verse uh, 35, all right? Number two, a prepared prayer. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. <laughs> and he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. All right, this, I literally read this and said, wow. I don't know if you guys read this and like, wow. This is gutsy. What a, what, a, what a request to go to God and say, hey, God, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Don't, don't ask. Just whatever we say next, you got to do. That's a pretty gutsy prayer. You know, I feel like I used to like do this with my parents as a little kid. Mike has done this recently. Like, hey, I'm, I'm going to ask you something. Just say yes, <laughs> right? Don't, say, don't ask what it is. Like, this is what they're doing. And they go, we want you to do whatever we ask. And it's a big request. And, and it's something where Jesus slows down and says, well, what do you want me to do for you? How, how can I, how, what, what is it? And I think, again, there's so much we, we see, and they say, we want to sit your right hand, your left hand. And let me just say this. I don't think they really knew, obviously, what they're asking for. I mean, it's really clear. They have no idea what they're asking for. They have no idea what they're saying. Like, think about the context really quick. Think about what's happening. I think they were numb to the cross. Here's followers of Jesus numb to the cross. Third time, Jesus says, I'm going to go to a cross, the thing that we all don't like and don't want to talk about and think about. I'm going to go to the cross and ignore it. And I think for some reason, with Christianity, it's almost like we're numb to the cross. We've heard about the cross. We've heard about the cross. We've heard about the cross. And we're like, okay, let's get past that. I want to move on. And Jesus is like, no. We almost get numb to it. And this is what concerns, concerns me and my faith is I can get numb to the crucifixion, the crucifixion scene, the passion. I can hear about it and go, okay, can we move on from this? And I want you to see the irony of this. Because the irony is Jesus is talking to them about his suffering and they're talking about their glory. Jesus is like, I'm going to die. I'm God. I'm going to suffer and die. And they're like, wait, can we have glory with you like on your right and left? Like we want this glory. And they didn't know what they asked. Now, it's interesting to me, James and John. Who's James and John? James and John are brothers. They're the sons of Zebedee. If you remember Mark 3, we studied it earlier. Jesus gave them a nickname, which I so appreciate that Jesus nicknames people. And he goes, hey, you're sons of thunder. Why? I'm not fully sure why. There's a story in Luke 9 that I like to think why. If you remember in Luke chapter 9, Jesus and the disciples are walking through Samaria. The Samaritans don't accept Jesus. They don't receive Jesus. James and John go to Jesus and say, Jesus, they don't accept us. Should we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? Jesus is like, no. I did not come to destroy lives. I came to save lives. That's literally his answer in Luke 9:56. He goes, no. But there's this fire. There's this passion. There's this zeal with these guys. And they come to Jesus. Now, interesting side note. Matthew's gospel, I think, gives us also another perspective on this. Uh, yes, they're the bold, passionate guys. But, you know, they're actually asking this question with their mom. Their mom asked this question. If you guys want to read the verse, it's Matthew chapter uh, nine, or 20, verse 20. Listen to this. The mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, kneeling down and asking something from him. 
So their mom's going with them. All right, what a good mom. They're like, their mom's going with him and saying, hey, we, I want and they want and we want my sons to center right and left, you choose. And Jesus like, you don't know what you're asking for. And, and here's what we see and here's what we're going to look at. They wanted glory. Listen, the goal was glory. But they didn't understand the pathway to glory was first the pathway of suffering. That there's always going to be suffering before glory. And again, we see this throughout the Bible. First and second Peter is literally about if you want glory, there's going to be suffering. Before Jesus was glorified, he suffered. If you're going to want glory, glory one day will come through suffering. Like there's always suffering before glory. And they didn't get this. The request is we want to sit in your right and left. And they, they missed it again. There's this prepared prayer they have going to him. And Jesus basically says access denied, prayer denied. We'll go to number three, keep reading. Number three, we're going to see the prayer is denied. It says in verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to Jesus, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink and will be baptized. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it's for those for whom it is prepared. All right, so Jesus is like, I don't think you know what you're asking for. I don't think you really get it. Before there's, there's glory the way you think, there's going to be suffering. And he, here's what we got to point out. Jesus is referencing, he's saying, my greatest moment of glory, my greatest moment of glory is the cross. That's something they didn't get. I don't even know if I fully get this. That the, the, the low point of Jesus is not the cross. That's the greatest moment of glory. He goes, you want to be at my right hand? You want to be with me on glory? On gl- the glory of the cross? There will be someone on my right hand and my left hand. It's not going to be apostles on thrones. It's going to be criminals on crosses next to me. But they didn't get this. They thought we want to be with him on his right hand and on his left. And they, he goes, you don't get it. You really don't know what you're asking for. And so Jesus says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with what I'm baptized with? Now let's just talk about this really quick. What is he talking about? What is this cup and what is this baptism? So cup and baptism. Whenever you see the scriptures reference this cup, it's usually this cup of suffering. And the idea of a cup of suffering is, I am partaking with you in your destiny. I'm a partaker with you in your future, within your fate. It's almost like, I'm going to partake of this cup together with you. Whatever your fate is, my fate is. Whatever your destiny is, my destiny is. When the scriptures talk about this cup of suffering, it's usually with this mindset of the righteousness or the justness of God poured out on sin. It's a cup of wrath. So the idea of this cup is the judgment of God poured out. That's what the cup is, the cup of wrath. Do you guys remember when Jesus was in the garden and he's praying? He's going, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. He's let this cup pass from me. Again, this cup is God's wrath being poured out on sin. And Jesus is like, I'm going to drink this cup. It's going to be empty. I'm going to absorb the wrath of God for you. This is going, I'm going I'm to internalize, I'm going to take on the suffering of the world. And not just only is it going in me, but I'm going to be immersed in it. It's a baptism. And what we see is this cup speaks of it, the suffering being internal and him being immersed in it. Actually, in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, Jesus talked about this. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Jesus is like, I'm going to be baptized with suffering. I'm going to drink the cup of suffering. I'm going to take on the suffering of the world. Are you ready for this? And they're like, we are. And I literally laugh when I read that. I laugh a lot, I feel like, when I read about the disciples. I was like, yeah, we're ready. It's almost like, have you done anything really dangerous recently, like a waiver? Like, I'm okay if I die. I will jump out of this plane, and if I die, it's okay. And like, you don't really read it. You just like, sign it. Like, yeah. And we have no idea. Like, they're ready to sign their life away. They're like, yeah, let's do it. And like, you didn't read the contract. You don't really get what you're getting yourself into here. 
and they think they are. And, and we do know, historically, James was the first apostle to be martyred, this James. We know that John experienced persecution under Domitian, a Roman emperor, that he's exiled to Patmos. Like, we do see they had a unique form of suffering. Both of them were both unique in different ways. But Jesus says, I can't, it's not for me to grant who sits on my right and left hand in glory. And he, he, not just the cross, but he's talking about ultimately. And then he, he gives them a teaching on serving, just like he always does. He talks about his death and resurrection. They say something dumb. He's like, let me teach you now. So he's going to teach them. Verse 41, let's keep reading. It says in verse 41, and when the 10 heard it, they began to be greatly displeased. Of course, with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires, listen, whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. Jesus immediately uses this and turns it into a teaching moment. And please think about this. The other 10 are very frustrated at this point. They hear James and John and their mom Say, hey, we want to be the ones who send your right and left. And I feel like the ten are like, hey, like we don't, we were going to ask that too. Like I feel like they're probably mad because they wanted the same thing. They probably had the same request. And Jesus goes, no, no, we've talked about this. Do, do you not remember verse 31, last week's message, the ending? He goes, hey, if you want to be first, be last. Jesus, and, and they constantly miss it. They constantly don't hear the teachings of Jesus. I mean, if you were to look at the gospel of Mark as a whole, Mark presents Jesus to us as the suffering servant. Understand that. The way like anyone would define the theme of Mark is Jesus is the suffering servant. He's the servant who suffers and he's constantly teaching this. He's saying, hey, the way to be great in God's kingdom, the way to go up is go down. You want to be first, be last. Jesus is constantly preaching the upside down kingdom that they have this mindset of what it means to be great and Jesus is trying to redefine what it really means to be great and this is constantly happening in the gospel of Mark. The world says those who are great will be served the best people in this world are served hand and foot. Jesus says the best people in this world serve hand and foot. See, so he's flipping it. We think true greatness is you never do anything in your life and you're just constantly being served. He says, no, no, true greatness is you are the one who's serving. And he's flipping it over and over again. And then Jesus tells us why. And this is so important, verse 45. Jesus says, let me tell you why. Why did I come? What am I showing you? Verse 45, Jesus says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And here's what I want to point out first. Jesus denies their prayer. He says, you think you want glory, but what you really need is a ransom. And this gives me hope. That if Jesus ever denies our prayer, it's because he knows what we really need. You think you want glory, but what you need right now is a ransom. And Jesus, and here's Mark 10, 45, is almost like the epicenter of here's why Jesus came. Jesus is telling us why he came. First of all, he he did not come to be served. God, in my mind, should be served. Like he should come to earth and be served, but actually God came to serve, which is so humbling. And so counter how I think God would do it. So he comes to serve one and he goes, I came also to give my life a ransom for many. A ransom for many. A simple, low definition of, you could say, of ransom is to purchase someone out of captivity, to purchase someone out of slavery, to make a purchase, to buy. It's almost as if someone's been, you know, kidnapped and there's someone who's ransoming them and they want $100,000 for this person and there's an exchange taking place. I will give you, I will pay this price for this person to come back and this is what many people call the blessed exchange. That God's like, I'm gonna pay a huge price for you to bring you back. That you and I, we don't like to hear this, are slaves to ourselves, to sin, to the cares of this world. See, I think the hardest part about this idea of ransom 
is not a lot of people like to think that I'm in bondage. I'm not in bondage. You know, people are like, no, no, you don't, I'm not, you know you're in bondage if you don't think you're in bondage. <laughs> Here's the idea. Someone can know they're tied up and like, they know like, oh, I'm tied up. This is not good. I'm in bondage. Um, but someone who's maybe been hit over the head and knocked out and they, they don't know. They're hitting the head. They're knocked out. They're unconscious. They don't know they're in bondage, right? It's like the Jesus is really saying you're in bondage. And if you think you're not, it's because you're unconscious to the fact that you're in bondage. Here's why we don't like that. Um, we like to think that we're free. We like to think that I'm free to do whatever I want. No one tells me what to do. I'm completely free. And in a pursuit to be free, we end up becoming a slave. In the pursuit to say, I'm free to do whatever I want, we become a slave to that. It is really interesting how 2 Timothy 3 talks about we become a slave to self and to others and how they view us. Here's what we can know. If I'm constantly worried about what do they think of me? Why are they ignoring me? Why aren't they inviting me? Why aren't they? And it's constantly this kind of like, woe is me. They don't see me. It's me, me. You see that we can be a slave to other people's opinions. They think highly of me. I'm great. They think lowly of me. I'm not great. We're sl- he goes, I have come to ransom you from that. I have come to buy you back from yourself, from sin, from the evil. I'm coming to purchase you, to take you back. First Corinthians 6 says, you and I were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are his that God paid the most precious thing he had for you and I, that 1 Peter 1.18 says, you and I were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus. That God did not just give us something valuable, that God gave us something that was infinitely valuable, the most valuable, that we were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus, that we are ransomed by the blood of Jesus. And here's why people, again, don't like this idea of ransom. Still to this day, people talk about God and the wrath of God. And you go, see, it's barbaric. Christians, you're a bunch of like Greco-Roman p- people that think you need to slaughter something, you know, shed blood to make God happy with you. It's all barbaric and what you believe is barbaric. And there's a real kind of common like, you have this ancient mindset, how dare you believe in wrath of God and the, the blood being shed. And, and it's true. I mean, Greco-Roman mindsets did have this, this mindset of, okay, uh, we're not right before the gods. Let's kill this animal. Let's kill this thing to be right before the gods. And they would ransom something. They would kill something to be right with God. But here's what no one expects. No one expects that God would become the ransom. No one expects, what Christianity does is completely different. It says, we're not just, there's not just some sacrifice we, we kill to be right with God. God became the sacrifice so we could be right with him. God shed his blood so, we and I could, so you and I could be right with him. It's not something we offer. It's not something we murder. It's not something we kill. God himself laid down his life and shed his blood so we could be right with him, so we could have access to him. So they're like, oh, it's all so barbaric. But I go, man, it's so beautiful. My God said, let me, take, let me become the sacrifice. Let me become that uh, sacrifice, that atonement that appeases my wrath. I'm going to appease my wrath by becoming that for you and for me. That blows my mind about Christianity. God himself became that ransom. God himself became that sacrifice. Why? So he could purchase us. So he could say, you're mine. I'd not redeem you with corruptible things like silver or gold. I ransomed you. I gave you the most precious thing I had for you. And guys, if the gospel hasn't sunken into your heart yet, if that doesn't humble you yet, I'd say spend some time on this thought. That God did not just buy us with even great things, but the most precious, viable thing. I'm going to give my best for you, he says. Jesus is like, this is why I came. I came to be a ransom. You guys are missing this. You want to still be served, but I came to serve. And if you're going to follow me, this is going to be your mindset as well. And so we see that their prayers denied in this way, but here's what we see number four. We see another prayer, and their prayers accepted. And listen to this, the difference between blind Bartimaeus and the disciples. Uh, so number four, we're going to see a prayer accepted. Look at verse 46. Now they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be be quiet. (laughs) 
But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer, rise, he's calling you. What changed uh, the crowd? Verse 50. And throwing aside his garments, he arose and came to Jesus. All right, I just want you to imagine this for just a moment. Please, like, think through this. Blind Bartimaeus, by Jericho, on the outside of Jericho, just constantly begging. Imagine you're blind, you're by the road. You would just hear stories of Jesus all the time. Have you heard about Jesus? Like, again, they didn't have the internet, they didn't have newspapers, they didn't have Wi-Fi. Like, they would talk outside the city walls. They would talk as people were coming and going. And so blind Bartimaeus is begging, and he's starting to hear this name, Jesus, Jesus. They're going, man, Jesus cleansed the leper. Jesus casts out demons. Jesus calmed a storm. Jesus raised a little girl back to life. And then please hear this. One day he heard, because we studied Mark 8, one day he heard, Jesus healed a blind man. Here's a blind man going, wait, what? Understand this. Read the Old Testament. No one has healed a blind man. I don't know if we, we know that. No, no one. We've never seen a blind man be healed in the scriptures. You don't see that in the Old Testament. That was reserved for the Messiah. Isaiah 35, 3 talks about how the Messiah will give sight to the blind and allow the mute to speak. And so this idea of the blind scene is only reserved for the Messiah. And so he's sitting there going, wait, wait. Yeah, a little girl came back to life. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, demons are cast out. That's incredible. You're seeing a blind man got a sight? And from that point on, I honestly believe this blind man saw. That blind man's listening to these stories of Jesus. And he's going, oh my gosh, this is the one who gives sight to the blind. This is the Messiah. This is the son of David. Because what does he hear? Hey, Jesus is walking by. And what does he say? Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What is the title? He's giving Jesus a messianic title. Son of David, the one we've been looking for, the promised king, the king to end all kings is here. Have mercy on me. And I honestly believe this blind man saw. I honestly believe before he physically saw, he saw Jesus and understood who Jesus was. He goes, have mercy on me, son of David. And he knew who he was. And he cries out and he pleads and he begs for mercy. And I, this is always interesting. The crowd is going, shut up, stop, stop. And then he cries out more. <laughs> I remember my sister used to do that to me like we were like, kids growing up. She's like, Shh, stop it. I'm like, okay, stop it. Mom! And I'd yell more, louder, right? And this was happening. Like, stop it, stop. And he's crying out more. Have mercy on me. And then Jesus is like, bring him to me. And I go, hey, hey, be of good cheer. He heard you. And he comes to him. And verse 50 is so key, key to me. It says, he casts off his garment. Now, now, why is that important? A garment for a blind man, a, gar- a, bar- a garment for just a beggar. A garment would be laid out. It'd be laid out in a way where people could put their change or money or wealth. That was, in a sense, that's how, that was like their shopping cart. That's how they earned things. That's how they received things. That's, that was important to them. The garment was what kept them warm at night. I mean, the garment was key. That, the garment was something he would have been like, oh, there's a blind beggar, blind Bartimaeus begging. But he hears Jesus and he goes, let me just get rid of this right now. I know something great's about to happen. And he lays aside the garment. And that is so beautiful because this was his identity. I'm the blind guy. I'm blind Bartimaeus. even rhymes. I'm the guy. And he goes, but I'm going to cast this aside because I was once known as that blind guy. I was once known as that broken guy, but I'm going to receive a new identity in just a second. And I think this is so important because I think a lot of us can come to Jesus with like this, almost this identity. I'm the broken one. I'm the one who's broken. I'm the one who's hurt. I'm the one who's, and, and coming to Jesus with this mindset of, no, no, you're going to give me a new identity. No, no, I'm not going to be blind Bartimaeus anymore. I'm going to have something. Like he casts his garment aside. Can I point this out too, by the way? This is not just like, an, this is very interesting to me. This is the only person named who's been healed. In the Gospel of Mark so far, a person who's received healing, this is the only person we actually have their name. And it's fun to study this, because if you do look at this, there are many people who believed he's named, and even his dad's named. Why? Blind Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. What is that? It's believed that Bartimaeus ended up becoming a leader in the church that he was possibly, potentially, most likely a leader in the church of Jerusalem, that they're saying, wait, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, the guy that I know, he was once blind? Like, yeah. Like, he was, like, he, he left everything? Yeah. That his name is now recorded in scriptures? He's not just some person we know who got healed. He actually has a name? Yeah. 
In Luke chapter 10, verse 20, we're told not to rejoice that we can do all these great things for God. He goes, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Rejoice that I remember your name. And his name's remembered. Why? Because he followed Jesus. He's the only one we're, we're told. Jesus didn't even say, follow me. He's like, I'm just going to follow you. So he cast aside his garment, verse 51. We'll close with this. Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. And please hear this. And please, when I look at the story of James and John and their request and Bartimaeus and his request, they seem really similar, right? Like they both have a selfish desire in a sense. It both benefits them. I want to be in glory. I want to see that benefits both of them. The only difference I can really make out and why you say, I don't, I don't fully get this. God obviously grants it to them because grants it to Bartimaeus, but not to James and John. Here's what I see. Bartimaeus knew he was blind. James and John didn't. Blind Bartimaeus knew he needed healing. He, he knew he needed, he, he knew who Jesus was, son of David, have mercy on him. He knew, he, need, he knew that Jesus could do something only that Jesus could offer. Like, he knew he needed that. He knew, I'm, I'm blind, you can make me see. And again, throughout the gospel of Mark so far, we see that Jesus is talking about his death, his resurrection, and they still don't see, they still don't get it. They still don't, they're not willing to see their need. I think it's so important that we've got to be willing. Guys, I've got to be honest with myself. We have to be honest with ourselves. There's still a great need. There's still a great brokenness. There's still something only Jesus can fulfill and satisfy us. We have to recognize that need. We cannot be so arrogant to think that I'm not blind. Someone else next to me is blind. Part of me is like, no, no, no. I know that I'm blind, but you can give me sight. I know you can be the one that heals me. And so Jesus says, what can I do for you? And he says, I may receive my sight. And he immediately he's healed. And immediately he follows Jesus on the road. And again, that phrase, I had to like circle that phrase in verse 52, on the road. It's saying, and I think it's not just like he's on the road. Again, this is so specific. He's following Jesus now on his way to death. He's like, Jesus, wherever you go, I go. I'll follow you to the ends of the world. You not, again, he has a sight. You think, let me go make some money. Let me go, let me go make a name for myself. Let me go tell my family. Let me go to celebrate. But instead he goes, let me just follow Jesus. See, there's something about when you've really tasted and seen the Lord is good, you're like, I'm going to follow Jesus to the ends of the world. When you really experience the freeing power of what Jesus does for us, that whom the Son sets free is free indeed, that I am truly a slave to sin, to me, but Jesus has ransomed me, Jesus has purchased me, has bought me with a price that is himself. When I truly see that, that he gave sight to the blind, then I go, I'm going to follow you wherever. A true sign of a follower of Jesus is someone who follows Jesus. A true sign of someone who's been born again is, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. You're on the road. You're on the road to Jerusalem. On the road. On the road. Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. The idea is this guy became probably a known figure in the early church. And they go, wow, this guy left everything. This guy didn't go back to family. This guy didn't get a job. He didn't try to make a name for himself. He's like, I'm going to follow Jesus immediately to his death. Immediately to the cross. We're about to enter into that scene now in Mark 11 next week, just looking at the preparation even for the cross. Some last minute teachings of Jesus before the cross but he's on the road facing his death. And, and again, for us, for you and I, have you cried out to Jesus and said, have mercy on me? Have you realized that you and I need sight and that can only come from Jesus? Again, have you admitted you're weak? Have I admitted I'm weak and said, Jesus, only you can heal me. Only you can give me sight. I'm gonna follow you no matter what. I would say like, this needs to be for all of us, honestly. So I'm gonna follow you, Jesus, no matter where you go. Jesus, only you can bring dead people alive. Only you can heal the leper. Only you can bring sight to the blind. Only you, Jesus. Only you. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to cast off my garment, my identity, what I've been known for, my brokenness, my shame, my whatever, and I'm going to follow you because I have a new identity now. I'm not blind Martin Bartimaeus. I'm the leader of the church. (laughs) I'm following you. 
I have a new identity as a follower of Jesus, and you have a new identity as a follower of Jesus. And, and we see, again, these two different prayers. And I don't fully get the mind of God, obviously. The Bible says, who can know the mind of God? I don't get it. I don't know the mind of God, the heart of God. I don't know how God's like, yes to this, no to this. But I do know that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And there's something about somebody who says, no, I'm blind, I'm humble. And God's like, yes, you get it. Let me pour out my grace. Yes, you get it. You are broken. Yes, you get it. You are blind. Here's grace. And that's what, that's what we see the difference to me, this pride and ego in James and John and really this humility within Bartimaeus. You have mercy on me, son of David. Only you can. And if you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. If you say, Lord, have mercy, he will have mercy on you. Isn't that good news? We see this over and over again throughout scriptures. And he just followed him. Christians, let's just follow Jesus to the ends of the world, to the cross, wherever it might be. He's like, I'm not, the crowd's saying, shut up. The crowd's saying, stop it, be quiet. What is deterring you from following Jesus? What voice is in your life saying, stop following, stop it? What is that voice? He, he, he quieted the voice by being even louder. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. That voice, these voices, these crowds, it's not going to silence me. I'm still going to follow you. Let us be that Bartimaeus type of person who says, doesn't matter if people are trying to silence me, I'm going to follow Jesus. Amen? I just want to end with prayer and end with some time of worship and a couple of closing thoughts. Let's pray. Father, we just, um, again, are humbled by your word. Help me, help us, not just to be hearers of your word, but, but doers, but believers of your word. Jesus, we thank you that you are the only one who can give sight to the blind, both physically and spiritually, that, that Jesus, you, you've opened our eyes to who you are. Lord, we look to you. We call upon you. There's no one else that can save. There's no one else that can heal. So Jesus, I just thank you for everyone in this room. I, I ask God if they have not yet called upon you, if they have not yet cried out to you and understood that you are the king to end all kings, that Jesus, you are the one who saves, or that they would do so today. That there's no other name, Jesus, given among men by which you must be saved other than your name, Jesus. So we look to you, we sing to you, we praise you, we follow you. We ask all these things, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen.